0: This is RSA Radio. I'm Matthew Taylor. When push comes to shove, as it does to everybody at some point in their life, these things that we built our consumer society around are of no value to us whatsoever. When you confront people with the emptiness of that vision, it actually is the place where real prosperity begins, where you can begin to reconstruct what it means to be a human being and what are the things that are of real value in our lives. When economic growth falters, governments do everything they can
1: to stop the economy sliding into a downward spiral of reduced investment, reduced spending, declining incomes and job losses. But it looks impossible for economies to continue to grow forever without running up against natural limits. Despite big shifts to renewables, in March this year, the Mauna Loa Baseline Atmospheric Observatory in Hawaii reported the second year of record increases in the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We're on track to exceed the safe levels of carbon dioxide, which would limit global warming to two degrees by 2030. Well, alarm bells about limits to growth were first sounded in the 1970s. But more recently, a critical moment was the publication of Tim Jackson's book, Prosperity Without Growth. The book began as a controversial report of the British Government's Sustainable Development Commission. It was published just after the financial crisis in 2008. It's been translated into 17 languages. Tim Jackson, who's Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey, Director of the Centre for the Understanding of Sustainable Prosperity, has just updated and expanded the arguments in a second edition of the book. I'm delighted to say that he's with me now to talk about it and to help me to understand how we might redefine prosperity. So to start with Tim... Can we talk about the key original ideas in the book, just to remind people of those? On the one hand, there's the dilemma of growth, the economics of how you have a functioning economy without growth, and on the other, the attempt to redefine prosperity and to interrogate what's going on psychologically and in the structure of society that drives us to consume more and more, even though the evidence is piling up that it doesn't make
0: us happier. As you indicated, the starting point really was a kind of not age-old, but certainly a well-known dilemma. We're living on a finite planet, and the vision of almost every single mainstream economist is that the economy is going to grow and grow and grow. And in the process of doing that, uses up resources, it uses up environmental space, and, and you see this kind of disaster scenario writ large, um, which the limits to growth people, the Club of Rome, were the first people to sort of articulate precisely that... Um, eventually you're going to reach the limits of that process. When I joined the Sustainable Development Commission 2004 and I sat down with the chair of the commission, Jonathan Porritt, <clears throat> we sort of said, you know, what are you going to do, Tim, as economics commissioner? And that was the thing that we settled on, was to go back to that debate, a, a debate that had sort of gone underground in the intervening decades and, and had been replaced with a kind of uh, technological optimism that we could, solve all our problems with technology and that economies could grow and grow and grow, we'd get more and more efficient, everything would be all right. And in a way, a sort of saviour narrative around technology. Technology would save the day and and we could square the circle and we could all live happily ever after. And yes, the economy would grow exponentially year on year on year. And it's funny looking back on it because we talked to government all the way through this process and we even had insights from within Treasury saying, Uh, Yeah, this is a good time to ask this question because we're pretty safe in the growth model. Things look like they're going well. We have the longest period of sustained growth in whatever it was that was being talked about. I think quite a long time, like 200 years or something. And nobody knew that the crash was coming. So here was a safe space to say, are there limits to this model? And to think about whether, in fact, prosperity is the same thing as getting more and more and bigger and bigger each year and bringing back to the table some of those distinctions and realising actually that it's very straightforward to make that distinction between prosperity and the output of the economy. The output of the economy is a a good accounting statistic. It tells you how productive you are. It tells you how much people are consuming. It's a very bad indicator of of quality of life or well-being or prosperity, and everybody knew that, really. I remember that time. And there was a growing conversation
1: because it felt like we'd solved the problem of economic growth, which makes people think more about, well, uh, if we could assume growth is there, is it working for us? And then yeah. suddenly, just ahead of your publication, exactly. it all yeah. goes yeah. pear-shaped. And that led, I think, the government to losing enthusiasm or losing heart at the last moment in terms of backing your, your work. Yes, it, they
0: definitely did at that point. But to be honest, it was a difficult conversation before because... Not everyone agreed that we should be looking at it. I mean, there was another conversation, again, involving a Treasury official, where they said, we're going to look at this question again. And the response was, ah, now I see what sustainability means. It's, it's all about going back to live in caves, isn't it? And behind that question, a, a sort of almost visceral fear about the bad stuff that happens when growth goes away. And that was really influential to me, actually, in the writing of the book. It's why I framed it around this idea of a, of a dilemma, you know, it's pretty clear that growth, certainly as we've had it, is unsustainable. But what's the alternative? What happens when economies stop growing? What are all the bad things that we have to worry about? It was, in part, I think, the framing of it as a dilemma that made the book kind of work at the end of the day, because it wasn't someone coming out just growth bashing, which we had some of before and it certainly wasn't someone being prepared to accept that growth is the answer and technology will save us. It was it was actually putting those things together and saying actually this is the biggest challenge of the time in some sense because it's about the kind of society we want and the kind of economy that's going to deliver it.
1: One of the things that the book does is, is it is a kind of reality check and I suspect that people listening will have in mind the kind of reassuring things that we say to ourselves or we hear about the fact that we needn't be pessimistic about the, about growth. So one is the idea that what we're seeing is a kind of decoupling that, that growth is no longer as associated with the consumption of energy and finite
0: materials as it was in the past and that's something you pretty effectively nail in the book. It was an open question to me at the time when I went into it and um, we commissioned some work, we looked at our own studies, we looked at things that other people were doing around the world, big secondary literature review and in the first edition, uh, you know, I made this, particularly made this sort of distinction between a, a, an efficiency-based decoupling, a relative decoupling, so growth is going up, but resource consumption isn't going up quite so much, and absolute decoupling where, yeah, growth is still going up and we are really reducing our resource input and our impact on the planet, and we're going to reach our targets by doing that. And although you can see lots of examples of the first one, the relative decoupling, the efficiency-based argument, you see very little, particularly at the global scale, of absolute decoupling. And I think one remarkable
1: statistic I remember from the book is that in order for the poor parts of the world to catch up with developed world living standards, Uh, and to stay within our uh, targets for carbon emissions, we'd we'd have to increase our carbon efficiency by a factor of 200 times, isn't that
0: right? The first book actually was 120 times. And that was an interesting story in itself. You know, one of my my tasks in revising the book was to go back to that chapter. It attracted a lot of attention in the first edition. And and I kind of thought, you know, what's going to happen when I look at the better data? I found two things, really. One was that first, there was a lot better data. A lot more efforts to do the kind of thing that I tried to do in the first book, and not just around carbon emissions, but about resources and resource use and um, other environmental impacts and um, the, the impacts on land and habitation and so on and What I found was a complete surprise, which was that i didn 't have to defend the argument at all in a way it it was it had been made much, much more strongly, and things were not as bad as I said the first time around they were actually worse, and that it was harder to reach those targets. And that 200-fold figure was the one that I came to in the second edition. And, and and actually, even that, if you think about what Paris entails and 1.5 degrees entails, even that 200-fold decrease in carbon intensity doesn't get where we need to go for a 1.5-degree target. It's not enough. You can do all of this work around efficiency, and it's still, if you take those targets seriously, it's it's not enough to give us an equitable world of nine to ten billion people, all pursuing Western lifestyles um, and getting richer and richer. So and that, richer, that yeah. fundamental argument, you know, which is that in the
1: end, economic growth and sustainability are incompatible, is one that it has become even more demonstrably true between
0: the two editions of the book. What, what, what's um, I mean, what's what's interesting about that argument, and I made it in the first book in exactly the same way, is that I never explicitly said those two things are fundamentally incompatible. The argument that I made was they're incompatible in, in this kind of society. Right, right. And, and that was very much at the heart of the argument. And it's driven by this very, very simple dynamic that as human beings, we kind of want more and we want to consume more and we have this appetite for novelty and it drives um, you know, almost voracious consumerism if you just give it the chance to do so on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have um, a form of capitalism that is all about profit maximization, that is all about the innovation to achieve a greater market share that is consistently trying to milk this appetite that we have as voracious consumers in order to increase its Mm -hmm. profit margins. You put those two things together and you have a kind of system that is driving itself forward in a way that you can't ever really hope to slow down um, through some kind of technological efficiency so strategy. I,
1: this is something I want to, to explore uh, a bit more in depth. On my way here, I went onto the BBC website and I saw ONS had had, had said that the growth rate for the last quarter of last year wasn't 0.3 percent; it was 0.2 percent. <laughs> Uh, Nowhere in the article was there a suggestion this might be a good thing. The the universal assumption was that this is a bad thing. So take us to the heart of the argument that it is possible to have an economy which is stable, avoids recession, avoids mass unemployment, but doesn't rely upon growth in the traditional sense.
0: Well, let, let me kind of start that by saying, I mean, you're, that, that, that's a very good example of exactly what's wrong, is that we quote this statistic as though it is not just the only, but the principal arbiter of whether we're doing well as a society. And, and it's really this kind of that, that fetishization of that one statistic that's at fault. It's kind of a grossism that's at fault. Rather than necessarily growth itself, it's this idea that we steer our economies simply by trying to get growth out of them, squeeze growth out of them as much as we can. And and that, of course, has been even more the case, actually, since the crisis, when growth kind of went away, slowed down a bit. Uh, lots of conversations with economists about, are we now in a different place? Is this the new normal, a place where actually the growth rates are not as high? And if you look at long-term statistics of the growth rate, you find that it is systematically declining in most advanced economies. So even in its own terms, we're reaching this space where we can't rely on this growth-based but model. But it feels anymore. like a very uncomfortable space, Tim. I mean, what it you're, is a very uncomfortable space. That which space. you're
1: describing is precisely what many people would say is lying behind widespread disenchantment, populism, a set of political forces that feel quite dangerous.
0: Yeah, absolutely so. And what's weird about it, in a sense, is that it's driven by this continued allegiance to the idea that growth is the only thing that mattered. It's growth that's the only thing that mattered, that that sort of justified the power of the financial sector. It's growth is the only thing that mattered, that justified the idea that you push liquidity into a, a more or less a casino gambling system, in which which a few people got very rich and everybody else got left behind it's it's the pursuit of growth that justified even the deregulation of that system to the point where it became unstable and collapsed mm. and took growth away from us again so it's it's in in a sense it, it is an uncomfortable place to be it's a very uncomfortable place to be but the lesson from it is not so much you know there's a dial with the growth rate on you should turn it down immediately it's that there is another kind of economy to be built. There are other performance indicators mm. to prefer. There are real outcomes that we should value and work towards in our economy. And these were all being squeezed out essentially by this kind of chasing of growth in a, in a rather single-minded and somewhat mindless way to, to over a period of decades. So you,
1: you've got a kind of macroeconomic argument in, in a sense, which is that we should understand the distinction between a kind of healthy economy, an economy which is leading to greater human satisfaction and economic growth. And then the, the kind of mirror of the argument at a more kind of individual level is for us to understand the difference between human fulfillment and consumerism. And, a, and, a, and the book has a lot of material about trying to understand what you call the iron cage of, of consumerism. I wanted you to explain that concept a bit more, but I was going to put it to you in terms of one particular thing because one of the things I love about the book is that you... You don't want to caricature your opponents. You want to to explore what your opponents are saying. And you recognize, for example, the importance of materiality. This is not a book that says, look, actually, let's all just go and live in yurts and and, and write poetry. You know, you recognize Mm. that in materiality, things have always been important to human beings. So I I just want you to get this one particular lens, which is the idea of fashion. So Mm. I walked here along Oxford Street and there's people wearing lovely new clothes. You know, I'm a bit old to understand what the latest trends are. But nevertheless... Fashion is something we love. It's creative, it's bubbly, it's exciting. We enjoy talking about it. But in a way, fashion has been designed to drive this consumer machine because fashion is there so that every year we say, oh, I'm going to throw everything away because it's not the right kind of hem length or it's not flared enough or it's not the right colours and start all over again. Tell me... But in explaining the iron cage of consumers, what happens to fashion in your, in your kind of post-growth society? You know,
0: it's a really interesting <laughs> question because one of the things that absolutely fascinated me after, the, after I began talking about this, actually before Prosperity Get Out With Grace was published, I was exploring this issue of materiality and consumerism and the way it's driven. And I was absolutely taken aback because one set of people who really wanted to talk to me about this came from fashion. So London School of Fashion, for example, you know, invited me to stuff and they've got programs on sustainable fashion. And I asked them, you know, what on earth can that mean? Because you're (laughs) surely you're just trying to encourage more people to buy more things and turn it over faster so that you increase the profit margin of, you know, sweatshop labor production companies in desperately poor places in the rest of the world. And I mean, I don't quite say it like that to those people because it's a false caricature in a way. But it is a challenge for fashion, and and it's very interesting that there are people in the fashion industry who are coming up with different kinds of models and saying, actually, you know, there's a fashion industry around make and men do. There's a fashion industry that is about plurality and cottage industry. There's a fashion industry, of course, that is driven in this fast fashion way where you turn over, you know, huge profits on the basis of very fast changes and, 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 and you stimulate this kind of insatiable desire for novelty. But there's also a counterculture that's resisting that. And it's also within inside the fashion industry. And to me, that's a kind of, it's an example of, you know, how it's possible, if you like, to escape the iron cage. The iron cage metaphor is this idea that, you know, we're not fundamentally evil, selfish, totally hedonistic people. But we do have this desire for the new. We do have this desire for novelty. And novelty is like brightness. It's like shininess. It's like saying the future is a is going to be a better place than the past was. It's about saying we have hope for our children and what's achievable for them. So this this idea of the new and of novelty in itself is not something that we should or could really throw away. Mm-hmm. My argument is rather that that it's, it's when you place that at the center of all our motivations and when you place it at the center of your marketing strategies and when you place it at the center of the way that you think about enterprise and what enterprise is producing – and when you place that at the heart of your profit maximization model, these two things kind of mutually reinforce and they just bind us mm-hmm. into this cycle where we, we think of ourselves just as novelty-seeking consumers. And whenever we stop doing that, we're encouraged by, by, by advertisers and investors and politicians to, to go back out and do it again, to max out our credit cards.
1: And that's an example, I think, Tim, of the way in which the book tries to get us to think systemically about the ways in which different aspects of the kind of gross machine economy reinforce each other and depend mm. upon each other. And, you know, it's going to be hard in in the few minutes we've got remaining. But there's a, there's a critical chapter in the book, which I think has developed in the second edition from the first, which is the key ideas that we need to understand or reimagine around, for example, money. Yeah. In In terms of what a different kind of economy would look like, mm. there's four things in particular you want us to to think about differently. just tell us about those. It, it,
0: it was an important part of the second edition, really was elaborating a little bit more what it might mean. Okay, there's no dial w- with growth rate on that you turn down, but are there foundations mm. for a different kind of economy? And basically, I reached into the conventional box and said, actually, you know here's enterprise. what how do we have to think?" About enterprise it was a labor divisive um, profit maximizing linear throughput of the mass production of material stuff that wasn't improving the quality of our lives beyond a certain point is there another way to think about enterprise Mm -hmm. and saying yes actually think about enterprise as service Because it's service that improves the quality of our lives. It's service beyond our basic material needs that allows us to have education and social care and health and community and refurbishment and art and creativity. All of these things that are about prosperity in this broader sense come out of reframing the idea of enterprise and saying, actually, let's call it service and Mm. service of people in the service of other people. And likewise with work, where it's an issue that everybody is kind of beginning to come up against. We have this vision that work is a kind of cost to producers and it's a kind of penalty to workers. Um, And actually it totally does away with the idea of of people being in service to each other and that being an important part of prosperity to have meaning in one's life is in part about being able to participate in society and to think about work as a way of participating in society is a transformation of that concept and to me why at this point that is such an important transformation is because we seem to be carried away With that old paradigm of let's get rid of as much work as we possibly can and make our products cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so that we don't have to be paying these wages to all these annoying employees Mm. that we're trying to integrate into our production system. It goes back to that savior narrative of technology that we now have AI and we have robotization and of course they can do wonderful things in society. But they can't necessarily do a lot of the things that human beings do. And they can't give us the satisfaction of the doing of them. So this idea of transforming work, I think, is a narrative that is going to become increasingly important as we try to navigate what this transition is going to be from old models of, of production um, into new models of digitalization and AI and and the one thing that i would not want to get lost from that quest is this idea that actually particularly in certain sectors in care in craft in creativity it's the value of the time that we as human mm. beings spend in society that gives value both to the work and the service that comes out of it. Well I I
1: hope I'll make a small contribution to that in terms of emphasising the importance of the quality of work. I I want to turn in our last few minutes onto the kind of impact of the book and the relationship between ideas and social change but just very briefly and this is really hard I know because it's a complex issue. Money as well you want us to think differently about money.
0: Yeah this was something that came very specifically into the second edition and it was something that I hadn't known about for some time and that the real pioneers in, in thinking about money had talked about for some time. But we lived under a kind of, you know, a kind of a myth, a kind of illusion. We still broadly are living under this illusion that money, you know, is this wonderfully value-free thing that's created by the government in order to make the machinery work. And and neglecting to see that 97% of that money supply is actually created by private banks at commercial interest rates. And even the government has to borrow from those commercial lenders in order to fund social investment in the poorest people in society, to create welfare in society. And to me, when you begin to understand the dynamics of that, particularly as it played out through the crash, where, of course, it was the people who were making all that money who were the architects of chaos in some degree, then they called on the government to bail them out at the expense of an enormous rise in the public debt and the subsequent withdrawal of the social investment that money should be allowing in the poorest in society and it's a a deep deep inequality riven into the fabric of the system through the kind of money system that we have and the way that it works in practice.
1: And so you would you would say that, that
0: a sustainable
1: system is one which doesn't allow that private generation of, of money? We have to think very,
0: very seriously about the private generation of money. I mean, the the, the way that I think we should think about money is as a social good, and social goods are not things that you always privatize, and they are always things that you allow some sovereign power over, because otherwise you, you simply give away the ability of government to govern, give away the ability of government to invest, give away the ability of government to protect the poorest in society. And we've created a money system that has done that, that has emasculated the role of government. Um- We've only scraped the surface of the, of, of the book. I encourage
1: anyone to, to get hold of it because there's so much richness in it. I just want to talk a bit about what you are trying to do with the book, though. There were times when I was reading it, Tim, when I felt this is a manifesto. And other times when I thought this is a thought experiment. So one of the things that made me think the latter was that one issue you don't confront at all is the impossibility of one country doing this on its own
0: in a global mm. in a global system. Should the book be read as a manifesto or as a thought experiment? I think it should be read a little bit as both. I mean, it's also, it's a manifesto in the sense that it sets out an alternative vision to the one that we are confronted with, and one which to many people's eyes is deeply dysfunctional. So in that sense, it's setting out a vision. But it's not a kind of, you know, rose-tinted ideology. Actually, it's a, a philosophical investigation, both of who we are as people and of the kind of economy that we've created and Of the potential alternatives to that. At one point in the book, you
1: you asked the kind of question most rhetorically, you know, can ideas change things on their own? Now, my view of social change is that complex social change nearly always takes place because lots of different things all happen together. And there's Mm. something that is the tipping point. There's something that's a final rung on the ladder that gets over the wall, but you need all the other rungs as well. What is the thing that gives you most hope as being something that might tip us into this? Because at the moment in our general election campaign, we're speaking during the time, yeah. there's not much sign of any of this on the agenda. In your book, you talk about new social movements, you know, there are local yeah. authorities around the world doing interesting things. What What do you hope might be a trigger for this debate moving from where it still is, unfortunately, the margins into the real
0: mainstream? Yeah, it's interesting you say that it's the margins. I mean, I have, I have a different experience of it, which is that actually in the seven years between the first edition and the second edition... Um, my arguments and the arguments that I was making in that book have created a kind of meme that is now reflected back at me. So I find it actually quite difficult sometimes to go to an audience and present my ideas because I find they're already there. Mm -hmm. I, I find it difficult to go into my kids classrooms and and start teaching it because they will already have absorbed it not necessarily through me not necessarily through prosperity without growth but because there is a kind of countercultural meme that that has a momentum that it just did not have before the book was published um or at the time the book was published in the intervening seven years to a decade this countercultural meme really exists and it doesn't exist just as ideas it also exists as Practice, And I think that it isn't so much the ideas thing that gives me the sense that we might be at a tipping point, but it is this idea that a lot of the ideas are, in, are now embedded in practice, that there are people out there doing it and they're not doing it in the mainstream necessarily, but they're doing it everywhere. They're doing it in, you know, community health. They're doing it in B corporations and and, um, not-for-profit enterprises. So so one thing that you have to try to do as an economist or a social
1: analyst is distinguish a trend from a cycle. So I think what what I'm hearing from you is that although in the cycle, it might look as though we're not talking about these issues very much, you know, well-being is not really on the agenda like it was even a few years Mm. ago. We're all kind of a bit focused on kind of growth and austerity right now you want to say that the underlying trend the kind of social discourse is still going
0: in the right direction mm. and that eventually that social discourse will permeate the establishment it? it must do it has to because because the alternative doesn't really exist so so there has to be a point at which that narrative begins to bite and and to me you know there were some really there were some fascinating responses to to, to the work from all sorts of places, from venture capitalists to investment analysts to faith groups to literary societies in North London to you know, schools who wanted me to go and talk about it. One of the most fascinating, I think, response that I got was from the manager of a hospice. He wrote to me and he basically said, you know, every day my life is people coming through my door in the realisation that when... When push comes to shove, as it does to everybody at some point in their life, these things that we built our consumer society around are of no value to us whatsoever. And the project, when he put it in that way, it sort of immediately, to me, kind of humanized it. Because, because there's, a, there's an irony there, I think, because uh, uh, well, we haven't got time to explore. So I
1: I think an intriguing idea that pops up two or three times in the book, but you don't pursue it too much, maybe it's just too bleak, is that potentially consumerism is a reflection of our anxiety about our mortality.
0: Absolutely. No, it absolutely is. And there are some, you know, some people who have much more powerfully than I have, have, have made exactly those arguments. It's fascinating on the one hand, are we really being driven by this death anxiety that we're suppressing somewhere so that we don't have to think about it. And all we think about is bling. And at the same time, it is potentially a place to go. And this was the other part of the conversation from the hospice manager. When you confront people with the emptiness of that vision, even if it's a very bleak way to do it in his circumstances, it actually is the place where real prosperity begins, where you can begin to reconstruct what it means to be a human being and what are the things that are of real value in our lives. And finally, Tim, you are an economist, even if you are uh, an economist who
1: argues uh, with a, with mainstream economics on many issues. One of the things that's going on is a growing kind of desire to democratize economic debate. Um, we at the RSA are running the Citizens Economic Council, and I think you spoke there a, a few days ago. Do you think that an important part of this shift that you're talking about is? this attempt to say economics should be democratised is something we can all talk about. It isn't a technocratic expert area.
0: I absolutely do. And it was really fascinating that day that I spent there with the Economics Council people and really, really good people who had no expert knowledge or education around economics, but coming into a context where they began to understand, actually, that economics is ethics. Economics is morality. Economics is choices. Economics is about the conditions of the society that we want to live in. Economics is about relationships. And actually, it's absolutely right that ordinary people should be able to engage in that debate because it's about our values and we all share those values. And the one reason for engaging in economics, and I said this to the group at the time, which I is just a quote that I really love, is Joan Robinson writing in the 1930s and saying, you know, what's the point of economic models? It's so you don't get fooled by economists. And this idea, actually, that we should be encouraging a literacy because economics expresses some of the most important values that we have as a society and as individuals, and it's critical to all our relationships, and yet it's obscured by a technocratic language. And taking the blinkers off that and allowing people in is vital. Tim Jackson, thank you for joining me. Thanks.
1: This podcast has been an RSA and Resonance production. To receive future podcasts from the RSA, make sure to subscribe.